Okay, though we're not going to look at this whole chapter in detail this morning, I do want to read from verses 9 to 40. So if you have a Bible, please open it up to Acts 16, and we'll begin in verse 9. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought, as including Luke now, to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptised and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had, when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them. And the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. 
and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced, along with his entire household, that he had believed in God. But when it was day, the magistrates sent the police, saying, Let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul, saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly. Uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No. Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Life is full of questions right from the youngest age. And all we, all we need to remind us of that is just to spend a little bit of time with some small children. Children are full of profound questions that they are just completely unafraid to ask. Uh, here's just a few examples of the kind of questions that children like to ask. Where did I come from? What is God? How was I made? Where do you go when you die? What does we can't afford it mean? Why is the sky blue? Why is water wet? Why can't I stay up as late as you? How did the earth begin? Where do babies come from? Why is the moon sometimes still out during the daytime? And why doesn't the sky fall down? And so on and so on and so on. Excellent questions. But our questions don't stop when we reach adulthood. Why am I here? What's life all about? Why is the world like it is? Where is my life going? What should I do? Where do you go when you die? These questions have kept philosophers busy and in business for centuries, as have many other questions like them. But there's one question that the philosophers don't usually ask that is really the most important and vital question of all. It's the most important question that anyone, including you and I, could ever ask. And that question is the title of this morning's message. What must I do to be saved? And not only does this morning's passage that we've just read pose that very question for us, it also provides us with a clear and definitive answer. An answer that can literally change someone's life forever. I promise I'm not overselling it. The answer really is that good. But let's begin by setting the scene. And this morning, hopefully, uh, you've found the handout, printed it or got it on a screen. Uh, you might find it helpful. Not really got set headings this morning. Uh, but on that handout are some different points to just kind of guide us on the way through. Uh, so hopefully you can follow along there. So let's set the scene first of all. Here in chapter 16, we find Paul in the middle of his second missionary journey. And if you're not sure what I mean by missionary journeys, uh, go back and listen to last week's uh, message on the second half of Acts and you'll hear about them there. Having revisited the churches that he's already planted on his first journey, he then receives a vision from God telling him where to go next. And so they set sail 
for Macedonia. And with him now are Silas, Timothy, and Luke, the author, the writer of Acts. And their first port of call is Philippi, a leading city, verse 12 tells us, of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And the rest of the chapter is really set around what happens in the city of Philippi and around three stories of very different conversions. Luke, again, is reminding us that this gospel that Paul is traveling around to share can transform uh, the most varied kinds of people, the the most diverse kinds of lives. First of all, there's Lydia. She's a businesswoman from Thyatira who gives her life to Jesus after hearing Paul teach her and a a group of others as they sit by the riverside. Second, there's a young slave girl who Luke tells us was possessed by an evil spirit that gave her the ability to tell people's fortunes. Paul frees her with just a few words in the name of Jesus. And third, there's the city jailer. And it's his story that we're focusing on this morning. But in order to understand how he and Paul and Silas meet, we just need to see a little bit more, and I need to say a little bit more, about this slave girl. Here was a young person who was being abused in more ways than one, not just by an evil spirit that would often take hold of her, but also by the people who claimed to own her. For them, she was a real gold mine as they found a way to exploit her condition and make money out of her ability to tell people's fortunes. But now, with the evil spirit in her gone, their hope of making money out of her is gone as well, and they're not happy. In fact, they're furious with Paul and what he's done, and it's about to cause an uproar in the city as they ensure that Paul and Silas are immediately arrested and taken prisoner. And this is no orderly and civilised arrest. In verse 19, Luke tells us that they are seized and dragged into the marketplace before the rulers, the magistrates there in the city. Now, the owners know that they won't get very far with the magistrates if they just complain about their loss of income. So instead, they make up false charges against Paul and Silas, which seems to be a bit of a running theme in Acts, cleverly designed to stir up the emotions of the crowd. First of all, they they mention Paul and Silas's ethnicity, that they're Jews, and that stirs the crowd up against them. And it might also explain why uh, Timothy and Luke aren't included in, in the arrest. And second, they accuse them of disturbing the peace and of advocating unlawful customs, whatever they might be. And there is uproar. The unruly crowd take the bait and they join in with attacking Paul and Silas. And the magistrates apparently join with them in unleashing their fury on Paul and Silas as well. Luke tells us they don't just just strip Paul and Silas, they tear their clothes from their bodies like animals. And with no trial or hearing, no chance for them to speak in their own defence, the magistrates give orders for them to be beaten with rods. Verse 22. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, three times I was beaten with rods. And here in Philippi is one of those occasions. And really, the entire process is just one big miscarriage of justice. 
In 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul remembers that he was shamefully treated at Philippi. And indeed, Luke tells us they inflicted many blows upon them. This was a savage punishment that would have left them in excruciating pain and with terrible lacerations across their backs. And then finally, Luke tells us in verse 23 that they are thrown into prison. In fact, the jailer has been told to keep them especially secure. And so he puts them into the inner prison, which is effectively a maximum security windowless dungeon dungeon right at the heart of the, the prison building the most secure jail cell in the city. And as if that's not enough, he fastens their feet in wooden stocks, verse 24. And so there they sit, Paul and Silas, beaten, swollen and wounded, their backs, no doubt, sticky with blood, unable to lie down, uh, their feet stretched out and immovable in front of them and pitch darkness surrounding them uh, throughout the day. They could not be more trapped. The situation could not be more terrible. And the stage is perfectly set for what now follows. I think we surely forgive them for feeling a bit sorry for themselves, a bit miserable, perhaps bitter with those that have put them there, uh, maybe regretful that they'd ever come into the city of Philippi. But what actually happens next is, I think, one of the most extraordinary and moving episodes in the whole of the book of Acts. It all begins in verse 25 when Luke reports that at about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Now, this is in itself is amazing. There in the dead of night, chained up in the darkness, Paul and Silas can be heard singing praises to God. In the midst of great suffering and pain, what springs forth from their lips are joyful expressions of trust in God. As John Stock describes it, it is wonderful that in such pain, with lacerated backs and aching limbs, Paul and Silas at about midnight were praying and singing hymns to God. Not groans, but songs came from their mouths. Instead of cursing men, they blessed God. No wonder the other prisoners were listening to them. It is no wonder. It it must have been an attention-grabbing moment for those other prisoners. Such an unusual noise to hear in that setting. Not the sounds you'd expect to be coming from two prisoners, severely beaten, being held in the darkest and most depressing part of the prison. And as the other prisoners listen... They're learning about the God who has sent Paul and Silas into their city. Just imagine their voices ringing out down the corridors of that building, out to those other cells. Everyone knows which cell this remarkable sound is coming from. And then it happens. Paul and Cyrus's, Silas's chorus of praise is drowned out by the rumble and then the thunder of a mighty earthquake. And this is no ordinary earthquake. Not only is the prison shaken to its very foundations, but immediately all the prison doors spring open and everybody's chains are undone. They're all miraculously freed. Now, I don't know. I don't expect many of us have been in prison, but put yourself into their shoes for a moment. What would we expect everyone to do next? 
Just think of what happens in the movies when someone uh, inadvertently or deliberately opens all of the cell doors. What happens? There's a, there's a prison break. Everyone runs for the hills, which is what the jailer, awoken from sleep by the noise of the earthquake, immediately assumes when he sees all of the prison doors open. He knows, under Roman law, his own life will be forfeit if his prisoners have escaped. And maybe he's even heard reports uh, of perhaps Peter's miraculous escape from prison that we can read of in chapter 12, where immediately afterwards, Herod had all of the prison guards put to death because of his escape. He knows what fate now awaits him. A death sentence has been handed to him uh, out of nowhere with his name on. And so he decides it's better to end his own life now than to fall, uh, to fall on his sword and get it over with than to face a later and more painful death. But just as he draws his sword and prepares to kill himself, a voice calls out from the darkness. Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. I suspect this was even more shocking for the jailer, perhaps, than the earthquake and the open cell doors. Calling for lights, he rushes in and trembling with fear, he falls down before Paul and Silas. And then he asks the question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, remember, Paul and Silas have literally just saved his life by not escaping. Surely a more natural response from him would have been something like, well, thank you so much for staying, or, or why are you still here? But no, having just been saved from one kind of death, he realizes he wants, he, he desperately needs another kind of rescue even more. He wants the salvation that Paul and Silas have been locked away in here for proclaiming. He wants to be made right with God. And as we said at the start, this is the most important question, the most vital question that anyone can ever ask. And Paul and Silas are ready now with the answer. But it's not what people, what many people might expect. In fact, the way a person answers this question demonstrates their entire understanding of the Christian gospel, whether they've got it or not. Because Paul and Silas don't tell the jailer to sort out his morals, clean up his life and turn over a new leaf. They don't tell him to set out on a journey of good works, a, a new list of do's and don'ts that will one day result in him being saved. In fact, they don't tell him to do anything at all. They simply point him to the person who saves. The same person who saved Lydia, the same person who saved the slave girl. Verse 31, and they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. The truth is, there is nothing that the jailer or any of us can do to save ourselves. It's not about what we bring to the negotiating table with God. Only Jesus saves. Like people drowning beneath the waves, our only hope is the rescuer who's come to pull us up 
out of the deadly, stormy sea of our sin. Believing and trusting in him is the only thing we can do. But notice as well, the believing and trusting in Jesus is the only thing that we need to do too. Because Paul doesn't say, believe and you might be saved. He says, believe and you will be saved. The outcome is certain. God's promises are sure. As it says in Acts chapter 10, verse 43, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Or in John 3, 16, those famous words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. As Matthew Henry writes, this is the only way and a sure way to salvation. There is no other way of salvation than by Christ and no other way of our being saved by Christ than by believing in him. And no danger of coming short if we take this way, for it is the way that God has appointed. And he is faithful that has promised. And as Paul and Silas continue to, uh, Luke tells us, speak the word of the Lord to the jailer and his household, they no doubt explain to him more about who Jesus is and what he's done. They would certainly, I think, have laid out those most essential truths that Paul describes elsewhere as being of first importance, that Christ died for our sins and on the third day rose again. But their invitation remains simple and the same. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And within the hour, the jailer and his whole family put their trust in Jesus and they're saved. It's, it's amazing. But it's no accident. If we just think back over what's happened this night, it's impossible to miss God's gracious sovereign hand in all that's taken place. It was God who sent this earthquake and not primarily for the rescue of Paul and Silas, for their physical rescue, but for the spiritual rescue of the jailer and his whole family. To uh, adapt and maybe slightly uh, butcher the old hymn, it was Paul and Silas's chains that fell off, but gloriously it was the jailer and his whole family who rose, went forth and followed Jesus that night. And, and, and Luke wants us to know the jailer is a changed man. His fears are gone. No condemnation now does he dread, for on this very night he has been completely saved. Immediately, Luke tells us that the jailer responds in several ways. First, verse 33, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. Maybe he'd even been personally involved in their beating the day before. But now he shows kindness and compassion to them as he washes and cleans their wounds. It's a profound transformation where once he treated them roughly as his prisoners. Now he cares for them tenderly as his brothers in Christ. It's another in a long, a long line of reminders in this book that no one is beyond the reach of God's saving grace. And then second in verse 33 again, we see he was baptized at once, he and all his family. There are, if you like, two kinds of washing 
that took place on this night. The jailer washing Paul and Silas, cleaning their wounds, and God washing the jailer clean from his sins. And it's the second of those washings, the washing clean from his sins, that is symbolized as he's immediately baptized along with his family. And then he serves Paul and Silas again by bringing them up into his house and giving them food. And, and, and there, presumably around the dinner table, Luke tells us he rejoiced along with his whole household. And what a joy-filled meal it must have been. A short time earlier, this man was ready to commit suicide. Now he's radiating the joy that comes from knowing his sins are forgiven and that Jesus is Savior and Lord. Only the grace of God can so transform a person's life like this. And all because he was willing to ask, what must I do to be saved? I wonder this morning, have you ever asked that same question? Do you know what it is to be saved from sin and forgiven by God? Have you ever been as urgent as the jailer was about your need to be saved? If you haven't been until now, please know you can respond to Jesus today. You don't have to go to a special place or, or to be with a special people. He can hear you right where you sit at this very moment. He's far nearer than you imagine, holding out his hand to you this morning with the very same offer of rescue that he made to the Philippian jailer. Turn to him. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And you'll find the very same joy that the jailer and his whole family found on that night. The, the joy of knowing that you are loved and forgiven and accepted by God and welcomed into his family. And speaking of family, the next morning when Paul and Silas are formally released from prison and asked to leave the city, Luke includes one more important detail. Verse 40, so they went out from the prison and visited Lydia. And when they'd seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Luke tells us they went to see Lydia and the brothers. What that tells us is that there is a new church family that has been born in Philippi, the very first one in this city. Before Paul and his friends arrived there a few, a few days before, there were literally no Christians in Philippi. But now, because of the saving power of Jesus, Paul and Silas can meet with a new church family there. Uh, now, it's hard to imagine a more diverse and varied group than the one that's now uh, making up this fledgling church. Lydia, the businesswoman, a slave girl, a, a jailer and his family and maybe some of the prisoners and, and who knows who else. It's a, here they are, uh, worlds apart in so many ways, yet through faith in Jesus, they've been welcomed into one new family, rescued and redeemed and united together in brotherly and sisterly love. And this is a beautiful picture of what the church is and what the church should be. It's a wonderful reminder that the gospel doesn't just save isolated individuals. It places them, every one, into a whole new family. And we don't need to wonder as well how this new church got on, because we have Paul's own letter to them, written some years later right here in our Bibles. And in the letter to the Philippians, Paul speaks 
of his deep affection for the Philippians and of his great joy and confidence in God's continued work amongst them. And perhaps unsurprisingly, following his experiences in Philippi, Paul speaks more of the need to rejoice in his letter to the Philippians than in any of his other New Testament letters. And I think that is surely one of the big takeaways from Acts chapter 16. To put it in the form of a question, how were Paul and Silas able to praise God in prison? How were they able to praise him and sing to him uh, in prison? Well, quite simply, they were able to do so because their joy didn't depend on their circumstances. Their joy depended on something fixed and unchanging. It depended on their knowing and belonging to Jesus. Just like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego we heard about a couple of weeks ago, they didn't know whether God would save them from the fiery furnace, from execution. They, they knew he could, but they didn't know if he would. But that didn't rob them of their joy. Because they and Paul and Silas know that they've been saved from something far more serious. They know they have a saviour. More importantly, Paul and Silas know that their saviour has them and that nothing can separate them from his love. He was with those three men in the, in the fiery furnace. He is with Paul and Silas in the dungeon. And so even there, they can go on singing. And we can do the same. We too can pray and sing in the midst of trials, not because we're remarkable Christians, but because we have a remarkable saviour, a saviour who has promised to never leave us or forsake us, a saviour who has promised to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. If we have Jesus, we always have reason to rejoice. That's the first takeaway from chapter 16. Rejoice in the Lord always, as Paul would later write to the Philippians. Again, I will say rejoice. The second takeaway is this, also in the form of a question. What prompted the jailer to ask his most important question? What prompted him? What compelled him to finally ask, what must I do to be saved? Now, perhaps there were a multitude of reasons we don't know about, but I think we can clearly identify three this morning. First of all, he realised his own mortality. He experienced a moment of real crisis in his life. The earthquake and the sudden realisation that his life could all be over drove him to ask himself the question, am I ready to meet with God? Am I ready to die? Now, not everyone, let me be clear, has to have a moment of crisis like that. Uh, Lydia was just sitting with her friends. Uh, it sounds quite nice, really, down by the riverside when she heard Paul and Silas teaching people about Jesus. And there, as she sat comfortably and listened, she realised she needed to be saved. She put her trust in Jesus. But God can also mercifully use moments of crisis in people's lives to awaken them to the urgency of their need, to remind them that life is fragile and short. Whether you live to be 10 or 100, it doesn't last forever. To remind us that death is always, in fact, just around the corner and that we need to be prepared one day to stand before God. Now, if we had to find uh, just one thing, one positive thing to come out of the terrible tragedy 
uh, that is the coronavirus, it would surely be that so many people have been freshly reminded of their own mortality. How we pray that God would use this whole situation to open people's eyes, to realize their need of a savior. Let's keep praying that prayer uh, during these times. So he realized his own mortality. Second reason I think he asked the question is because he heard something of the gospel. And I say something of the gospel because there's nothing to suggest he'd heard a carefully laid out presentation of it yet. The jailer had not been on a Christianity Explored course or sat for several hours down by the riverside uh, listening to Paul and Silas teach like Lydia had. But he had heard something. Maybe he, or probably he knew the headline summary of why Paul and Silas were here in prison. Perhaps he'd also heard reports of the words of the slave girl, just a, a single sentence, but a powerful one. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. He'd almost certainly have heard something of Paul and Silas's singing that night as they sang about Jesus from their prison cell. He hadn't heard much, but he'd heard enough to prompt him to ask his question. And that should greatly encourage us because we don't usually get opportunities with most of our friends and neighbours to carefully unpack the gospel for them uh, just kind of out of the blue uh, for two or three hours one time like Paul and his friends did with Lydia. But the jailer reminds us that we shouldn't underestimate how even the littlest things, the smallest exposures to gospel truth, a song, a word of prayer, a Bible verse, a WhatsApp message to a friend can profoundly influence another person and ultimately play a part in drawing them to faith in Jesus, to draw them to ask the question, what must I do to be saved? So let's keep talking about Jesus in big ways and in small, at every opportunity, wherever we are, in whatever way we can find. And thirdly and finally, I think the jailer asked the question because he also saw the life transforming effects of knowing Jesus. Paul and Silas were not impressive people to look at, especially when they were naked and bloody and chained up in a cell. But what the jailer could see in them was lives that were consistent with what they said they believed. He saw two men that had been transformed through knowing Jesus. He saw it displayed in their deep, unshakable joy <clears throat> in the midst of trials. He saw it, too, in the way that they loved others more than they loved themselves, choosing rather than saving their own lives by escaping to remain in their cell in order to save the life of their captor. He saw as well um, uh, as well as heard the gospel that Paul and Silas believed, which is certainly a challenge for us to think about how we live and what others see. <clears throat> Do our lives and our actions back up what we say we believe? Are we a people who exhibit joy in Jesus, even in the midst of trials? Do we visibly love others more than we love ourselves, even to the point where we're willing to suffer that they might hear the good news about Jesus? Now, I'll be the first to say I often fail in all these ways. We all do. And it's no big surprise. We're still sinners dependent on our saviour for help to live out the gospel each day. But I do hope we can see the encouragement here too, 
if we're intentional about living lives that are shaped by what we believe, shaped by knowing and following Jesus, enjoying God's gracious forgiveness uh, in our lives each day, it will be visible to the people around us. And it will draw some of them to ultimately ask of us, what must I do to be saved? There is no greater witness to Jesus than gospel words backed up by gospel living. I think there's nothing that the spirit is more pleased to use in drawing people to Jesus than those two things exhibited in the lives of those who've already put their trust in him. So let's strive to go on speaking and living for Jesus each day with the Spirit's help. And let's be ready to answer that question when it comes. Ready, as the Apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter 3, to give an answer to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that it is in us. But even before we do that, let's first be sure that we've asked the jailer's question for ourselves and that we've responded just as the jailer did. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Let's pray.